This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Alan Havis, provost of Thurgood Marshall College and co-host of the Reconsidering Little Rock Symposium and Celebration. And I'd like to introduce my dear friend and co-host, Stephen Adler, provost of Earl Warren College. This is tag team hosting. Uh, good evening, everyone, and welcome to our three-day commemoration of the signal events that transpired 50 years ago, in September 1957, at Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. Last spring, Provost Adler and I sought to create a means to acknowledge the significant contributions that our college's namesakes, Thurgood Marshall and Earl Warren, lent to the movement of public school integration. Both men were key players in the landmark 1954 Supreme Court decision, Brown v. Board of Education. Although the Brown decision was the trigger for major social change, it was three years later in Little Rock that the nation experienced the first dramatic test case in flesh and blood of the principles that drove the Supreme Court decision. In planning this week, we identified three elements of focus, the path from Brown to Little Rock and the legal legacy over 50 years, and two, the social and educational dimensions of public school desegregation. Lastly, three, a performing arts celebration of theater, music, and media inspired by Little Rock. We felt it was essential to bring to campus keynote speakers of national prominence for the first two nights. We were very lucky that Dr. Terrence Roberts, one of the Little Rock Nine, and Julian Bond, chairman of the NAACP, two formidable and, dare I say, historic figures in American civil rights, were eager to join us for this event and to share their insight about what transpired and what is to come. It is now our pleasure to introduce this evening's moderator for the panel, um, Ed Spriggs, who will in turn introduce our keynote speaker, um, Mr. Spriggs. Of course, Ed Spriggs is our Associate Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs. Please give him a hearty welcome. Good evening, everyone. These lights, I can't see a single person, so I'll just go on faith. As a graduate of UCSD and the founding president of UCSD's Black Student Union, it is truly an honor to introduce our keynote speaker for the evening. Tonight, we are privileged to have the opportunity to take a hard look at our country from the perspective of the early period of the Civil Rights Movement right on through to present day. We will look at how much our society has changed in terms of how it deals with the issues of social justice, particularly matters of race, and how that change has slowed and perhaps stopped and even reversed itself. This brings us to the most important matter we hope to examine. Why does our country remain in this highly resistive state? when it comes to race relations and finishing the work to make all citizens truly equal 
that was begun in 1954 in the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision. By equal, I do not just mean equal before the law, which is surely necessary, but just as importantly, equal in our opportunity to fulfill our varying potentials as human beings through access to equally good schools, equally well-paying jobs, equally beneficial business and home financing, and all the other services and resources that enable one to succeed in our society. Tonight we are privileged to have with us a person who has for many years played a key role in addressing these and other issues of social justice. Dr. Terrence Roberts was, as mentioned, one of the Little Rock Nine, the nine children who were the first to integrate the Little Rock Public Schools in 1957. Dr. Roberts holds a PhD in psychology from Southern Illinois University and a master's in social work from the University of California, Los Angeles. He is licensed in California as both a psychologist and a social worker. He has served since 1975 as CEO of Terrence J. Roberts & Associates, a management consulting firm. This group has provided consultation to a wide variety of clients, including Cedars-Sinai Hospital, Federal Bureau of Investigation, Internal Revenue Service, and Pepperdine University. The group offers expertise in several areas, including managing racial and ethnic diversity and developing multicultural awareness. Since 1998, Dr. Roberts has been a desegregation consultant for the Little Rock School District. A published author, he also maintains a general psychology practice in Pasadena, California. He has received numerous awards and is a member of several boards, including Pacific Oats College Board of Trustees and the Little Rock Nine Foundation. Would you please bring to the stage with a warm welcome, Dr. Terrence Roberts. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure to be here among you. And before I talk to you about some of the things I have in mind tonight, I would like to offer thanks on behalf of the Little Rock Nine to those of you who offered prayers on our behalf when we were going through our ordeal in 1957. We most certainly needed those prayers, and they worked. We all made it through. Sometimes I wonder how on earth we did survive because the intent on the part of the opposition was to kill us. They said as much. They said, we would rather see you dead than see you in our school, Central High School, which had been reserved primarily for white students. How did that come to be? How did that happen in these United States of America? Well, we realize as we look at our history that for a very long time, we the people have been involved in maintaining very rigid walls of separation between groups of people based on racial group membership. That was something I learned very early on. 
In fact, when I was born, and my mom saved my birth announcement for me, it appeared in the Arkansas Gazette, the daily paper in Little Rock. All of the babies born in and around Little Rock in the first week of December 1941 were presented to the public. The list starts off with Mr. and Mrs. Spotswood Billingsley, daughter Geraldine Juliet. It's the South, you remember. And then the list goes down the page. About halfway down the page, the obligatory social titles of Mr. and Mrs. suddenly fall away. And then the remaining group are listed as first name only, parents and their progeny. The casual observer might conclude that there's been a mistake here that will be corrected in tomorrow's edition. However, the more astute observer would realize in a flash that those babies presented to the public as the progeny of folk without the titles, Mr. and Mrs., were black babies. Black parents did not merit those titles simply because that would put them on equal footing with white parents, and that was not to be. Some years ago, I happened across a text written by a social psychologist by the name of Ernest Becker. In that book, among other things, he said, the task of culture is to provide each and every single individual with the firm conviction that he or she is an object of primary value in a world of meaningful action. That was not the message I got in Little Rock. In fact, the message was quite different. The message said that you don't count for much. You have no rights. There's nothing about you that suggests that you should participate in the body politic, that you should have a voice in any kind of arena, be it private or social, and you'd better stay in the back, your place. And as a young boy, I could not figure that out. How on earth could this be? I used to think that Little Rock was some sort of an aberration, that outside Little Rock, people were actually sane. Well, that proved not to be the case as soon as I was able to move around and found out that Little Rock was simply a microcosm of the rest of the world, certainly the rest of the United States of America. And again, the question, how and why could such a thing happen? Well, we put so much energy into maintaining those walls of separation that it became habitual to do so by law, by custom, by desire. For well over 300 years, we the people said, we shall remain separate and apart from each other. Legally, all of that changed in 1954 with the Brown decision. The Brown versus Board of Education Topeka, Kansas decision by the Supreme Court said that it was no longer constitutional to discriminate. So we assume that prior to that time, it was constitutional to discriminate. And if you do something for that long a period of time, you don't stop in 1954 because the Supreme Court says so. So if we think about that time period as being 300 plus years and think about the time since 1954, which adds up to 53 years, there's a great imbalance, a tremendous imbalance. And we also know that because we've done it for so long, there is carryover even into the 53-year period. So we have residual, leakage, spillover, systemic elements woven into this current time period. That alone would set the stage for action you would first have to figure out what action to take, but it gives you a charge when you think about it. We have a lot of work to do in that regard.
As a very young kid, I knew nothing of this. All of this stuff had transpired. You see, when I was born, this country was operating under the aegis of the Plessy versus Ferguson decision by the same Supreme Court. That decision had been rendered in 1896. That was an interesting case, by the way. Homer Plessy, a man who lived in Louisiana, bought a ticket to ride on a train. He took his seat. The conductor came and told him, you're going to have to move into the section reserved for colored people. Plessy objected. He said, no, I've paid full fare. I should ride wherever I want. The conductor said, no. State law says you can't do that. Plessy took his case to court. That case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court at that time said no to Plessy. No, Plessy, because you are a black man. You have to ride in the coach reserved for black people. Interestingly enough, in terms of his physiognomy, it was hard to tell whether Homer Plessy was black or white, but that didn't seem to matter, especially since during that time we also had the one-drop rule. You've probably heard of that. If you are a person who has, quote, one drop of black blood, then you are you're black. You know, this whole country has been sort of schizophrenic about things racial for a long time. For instance, did you know that it is legally possible for white females to give birth to black babies? But it is not legally possible for black women to give birth to white babies. I don't know what that's all about. But, uh, <laughs> and I live in America. But, in any case, there I was in Little Rock trying to figure this stuff out. Trying to make sense out of it. And I was always a good student of everything. I wanted to learn as much as I could about everything. So I, I questioned people, what's going on? Would you please tell me the truth about this? But none of the answers were satisfactory. In fact, people seemed frightened to talk about it. Nobody wanted to broach the subject. So I had to do my research on, on my own. I couldn't figure it out either. In fact, I'm still trying to figure it out. But I thought education made sense. That much I knew. And by the time I got to first grade, I began to encounter people who felt the same way. One of the anomalies about that situation was this. In the Little Rock school system, which was totally segregated, and my experience as a young school kid was in and among other black people, all the teachers, the students, the administrators, the janitors, the bus drivers, the cafeteria workers, etc., were all black people. They didn't like any of this situation, but rather than allow that situation to cause them undue grief and agony, they marshal their emotional energy and their intellectual energy, and they funnel it into us, the school kids. One of the crazy things was that because of the separate but equal decision in the Plessy decision, the state of Arkansas was obligated to provide separate facilities for black people. Now, they did not provide separate graduate schools for black people, so anytime a young person wanted to go to graduate school, the state would have to pay for that person to go to school outside Little Rock to other states, perhaps even California, maybe UC San Diego. I don't know. But these students would go away, get the graduate education, come back to Little Rock, only to discover that they couldn't get jobs in those professions, but they could teach in the all-black schools. So we students had the benefit of all of that expertise and they were sharp enough, these teachers were sharp enough to know that if they allowed their own anger and frustration about the situation to overwhelm them, they would be of little use to themselves or to us. So they decided to pool their energies and make certain that we, the students, learned as much about education as we could. 
exemplified by my first grade teacher who told me, you have to become the executive in charge of your own learning. You've got to take CEO responsibility for your own learning enterprise. That made sense to me because I, I loved learning. I loved school. You know, I used to fret because they would close schools on the weekends. School would be open Monday through Friday. And all of a sudden, without warning, they'd close them down two days out of every week. That absolutely made no sense. I mean, what do kids do on the weekend, you know? So I would take the time that I had, even on the weekends, to learn. I wound up meriting the title nerd after a time. But those of you in the audience who are also nerds, don't worry about it. I was a proud nerd. <laughs> because I realized that, especially when you're young, you have so much energy. If you use that energy to learn, what an advantage. Well, going into the all-black junior high school, I found teachers there who not only would spur us on toward learning, but they would talk to us about things beyond the academic curriculum. They talked to us about things political, about things philosophical, about things sexual. We had sex education with no parental consent. Never was thought that that was necessary. But the teachers knew that because we were sexual beings, we needed to know how to be responsible sexual beings, and I'll always appreciate that. The other thing that happened while I was there that I learned about the value of language, using language, paying attention to language. I do a lot of talking these days with high school students, and it seems like they are confused about the true value of language. They seem to lock in on certain words and overuse them. Perhaps even on this campus, you will hear the word like used. I would like, if it is that the way here, I would <laughs> like to suggest that you retire that word for at least a year. There are other words, just a side note. But at any rate, back to Little Rock. There we were, trying to educate ourselves in the midst of all of this racial craziness. It wasn't as easy as I make it sound. It was hard work. But that was something else I learned, too, the value of hard work. I actually had my first job when I was eight years old. I was an assistant janitor at the YWCA. A man in my neighborhood by the name of Mr. Campbell worked at the Y, and he taught me about work. He said, Terry, you have to understand that work is a part of your future. And in order to make work pay off for you, you have to know how to do it. He taught me how to clean. We cleaned the Y so thoroughly that you could eat off the floor. And he said to me, if we clean the Y as well as we can the first time, subsequent cleanings won't be as difficult. I appreciated that. I left his employee after a couple of years and took a full-time job with Floyd's Drugstore when I was 10, making $8 per week. And I learned so much there because I had to interact with people of all sorts. Later, I tried to get a raise from Dr. Floyd. I wanted to go up to $10 a week. He said, no, I can't afford it, so I quit. That's another thing you have to figure out. When you reach your limit, find new areas. So I signed on as an electrician's apprentice for $12 a week. And that was really a valuable learning experience because the electrician was a rather obese fellow who couldn't climb into the rafters. So I had to do all of the wire pulling, and he would yell instructions from below. And because he found it difficult to get into all kinds of spaces, I found myself learning a lot. 
So I, I recommend work. I, and I say that because today's kids don't seem to know much about work. I was talking to middle schoolers recently, and I said to them, are you getting enough opportunity to learn? Do you have lots of homework? And they start whining about the homework they did have. And I said, are you kidding me? How can you whine about homework? You're ignorant. You don't know anything. You need, uh, you need as much homework as you can get. You need to be asking the teacher for more homework. They didn't like to hear that. But it's true. It's absolutely true. The nine of us were all good students as a result of all of this. We wanted to learn as much as possible because we saw that as the way out of this dilemma, this racial conundrum, if you will. We spent a lot of time. I used to uh, carry around a dictionary. That's one of the reasons I got the label nerd. I would carry the dictionary around and read it whenever I had a spare moment because that just made sense to me. You know, if language, or in this case English, is going to be the way that we communicate, that's going to be the tool of communication, then I should master that. I should know what it was all about. And then later on I found out that words actually have power. You can move people to action if you know the words that can get them going. When the Little Rock School Board decided to obey the law, and there was no precedent for that, to put together a plan to desegregate schools, it was amazing. I was in a state of shock, really. But pleased, because I thought, okay, now things are going to happen. The Little Rock School Board put together a plan to desegregate that would involve kindergarten through third grade. Beautiful plan. It would work. The townspeople in Little Rock knew it would work, and they were unhappy. So they decided to confront the school board and demand that they abandon that plan, which they did. The board capitulated rather easily, came back with a compromise plan, grades 10, 11, and 12, which was more acceptable to the folk in Little Rock. They figured that now we would have maximum opportunity for chaos, and they were right, because kids at that advanced age level grades 10, 11, and 12, would have learned enough about racist ideology to put it into practice more than kindergartners. It's, it's very difficult to incite kindergartners to riot about race. They tend to resist that. <laughs> Initially, when the school board came to the all-black high school and the all-black junior high school, they talked to the ninth graders at the Dunbar Junior High and to the 10th and 11th graders at the Horace Mann High School to let us know that there would be this integration experiment at Central High School in the fall of 1957. How many of you would like to attend? I think about 150 hands went up that day. Mine were, both my hands were up actually. It's probably 151 when you think about it. I was eager to make this change. I really felt optimistic. It was somewhat naive on my part because even though I thought there would be opposition, I had no clue as to the intensity of the opposition that we would wind up facing. But there we were, 150 strong, and those numbers dwindled down for lots of reasons until there were nine. But we were determined to remain a cohesive group of nine, and so we did. We decided to show up at Central High School on the first day of school, only to be rebuffed. The governor had called out the National Guard to keep us out. He said, we don't need you in our school, basically. We were turned away. We were away for three weeks. We actually entered school again under the protection of the Little Rock Police, which was not Phi Beta Kappa 
move on our part. But, and we almost were killed that day. The mob overpowered the police lines, and we had to be spirited out of the school through a basement garage. And the drivers were instructed, use the accelerator only. Don't even think about using the brakes. It was the only way we were able to get out of there. And it was simply providential that the school had an underground garage to begin with. Had that not been the case, we would have had to exit the school and face the mob, and who knows what might have happened. But in any case, uh, President Eisenhower eventually sent in the 101st Airborne Division to take us to school. And with those soldiers with us, we went to class. They took us to school in a convoy. We piled into an army station wagon with jeeps, with sirens in front and back, roared up to the school, and a convoy of soldiers formed a phalanx for us to walk through. And then two soldiers peeled off and escorted us to class. And they stood outside the door while we were in there. They couldn't come in the class, but they could escort us from class to class. Several students, as we walked in, got up and left, gave us the benefit of their best thinking before they left about who we were, who people like us, our mothers, and that sort of thing, and told us, uh, oh, travel advice, <laughs> told us where we should be returning to, <laughs> and said, we're not going to school with you. And I always thought that was odd, especially for young people to sacrifice educational opportunity in the name of segregation, but they did. Those who remained began to engage in a program of tormenting and harassing. We had individual tormentors. Mine was a young man named Jerry Tully. Jerry Tully was my tormentor. And wherever I was that school year, Jerry Tully was right behind me. If you ever needed to find Jerry Tully, all you had to do was locate me. It was a lot easier to find me. And then right behind me would be Jerry. He'd be kicking and biting and pushing and scratching. He was in my PE class as well. And one day the coach saw some of this stuff happening and he decided to confront it. So he called us all together in a semicircle right there in the gym and he said, you know what, fellows, I've been watching you sneak up behind Roberts. He called us all by last name. I've seen you sneak up behind him and you do these things. You're, you are a bunch of cowards because if you were truly men, you wouldn't sneak up behind him like that. You would challenge him face to face to the mat. And he pointed to the wrestling mat. Now, I must say to you, that was a huge surprise to me because the coach and I hadn't worked this out in advance <laughs> that this would be the remedy. But these guys took him up on it. About 50 or 60 young white boys lined up with Tully at the head of the line. And they had these twisted faces, these grotesque masks of faces. And the nonverbal message to me was, we're going to kill you. And I honestly believe that day I was going to die. And it's interesting, when you are at that point of imminent death, at least for me, you experience a great deal of calm. I was extremely calm, rational, thinking my way out of it. And I looked at Jerry Tully, and I said to myself, Tully, you want to be wherever I am. I am just about to depart this universe. In order for you to follow me, you will have to depart the universe. <laughs> now... Since I was the only one who understood the entire dynamic, I would have to become the instrument of his demise. And so I took that responsibility very seriously. When we got onto the mat, he came at me, full bore, and we were fortunately about the same size, a couple of tall, skinny kids. I sidestepped him and got him down in a headlock. He had worn that day a set of military dog tags, and I simply employed those dog tags and that chain as an instrument to restrict his air supply. 
and Tully was choking to death. He began to gasp and turn blue, and the coach, in a very disgusted voice, ran over and said, okay, okay, that's enough, break it up, break it up, get out of here. And he shooed us outside the gym while he stayed inside, which again was not a Five Eta Kappa move, because, I mean, you have to understand, in the aftermath of what just went down, something else is going to shape up outside. Now, I have no clue what it's going to be, but I also know, without any shadow of doubt, that I'm going to have some sort of a starring role in it. Well, we get outside, and all of a sudden, I'm surrounded by this same crew with those same faces. I'm in the middle of this circle, feeling very vulnerable because we're dressed in our gym shorts and tennis shoes, and I don't know what's going to happen, so I'm looking around the circle, and my fear level is going off the chart, and all of a sudden, from the periphery of that circle, walking toward me with a baseball bat in his hand is this gigantic human being by the name of Macaulay. Macaulay was a senior at Central that year. Big, big fellow, played football. You know, crew cut, no neck kind of person. <laughs> and he's looking at me with evil intent. It's the only way I can describe it. He's walking toward me with his bat swinging, and he's stalking toward me very deliberately. I stand there. There's no way I can take him on. He's too big. So I resort to eye contact, and I zero in on him, and we have laser-like eye contact, and he continues to walk. And he gets up this close, and we're standing there, breathing on each other for what seems like an eternity. And then Macaulay looks at me with even more intensity, and he says, nigger, if you weren't so small, then he dropped the bat and walked away. Now, let me tell you, that was one dramatic moment in what was to be the rest of my life. Because had Macaulay followed through on his intended purpose, he would have cracked my head. My brains would have spilled out on that playing field. But Macaulay had discovered a spark of humanity inside himself that he could not override. Something about him would not allow him to take undue advantage of a smaller human being. That worked for me. That was not unlike other times in the school. I can remember being beaten around in the hallway and I would not fight back because we had adopted a policy of nonviolence. And the kid beating me up at that point would reach a point where he could not throw one more blow. It just didn't work. See, it's very hard to keep pounding away on somebody who's not fighting back. Uh, oh, I imagine there are a few who could do that. But fortunately, most of them at Central were not of that ilk. But then plan B f was for me to run, so that was okay. Um, <laughs> Plan B often had to be employed. <laughs> After Macaulay and the gang sort of moved away, they were mumbling and grumbling to themselves because Macaulay hadn't followed through on his designated assignment. I made my way back to the gym, and now the idea was to get a shower and get back into the routine of school because the rules at school that year were very clear. After PE, you had to shower. That was required. Everybody had to shower. But for me, taking a shower was quite an ordeal because I had to contend with the hottest of water coming from all of the shower heads plus broken glass sprinkled on the floor. That was usual and ordinary. So I would take quick showers, getting in and out of there as fast as I could. On this particular day, having been rattled by the encounters prior to, I made my way down to the locker and I forgot to maintain high-level vigilance, which was definitely a requirement that entire year. 
While I'm fumbling with my combination lock trying to remember the numbers, three or four guys snuck up behind me. One of them threw a combination lock as hard as he could with great accuracy and caught me on the side of the head. And the blow was so hard it almost knocked me out. I was woozy. I began to bleed from the cut it opened. But as I was going down, I went down on one knee. I could hear the footsteps rushing toward me, and I realized if I did go down, chances were that I would not be able to get up again ever. So I managed to maintain some semblance of balance against those lockers and stumbled across the threshold of the coach's office, which fortunately was nearby. And there was a coach sitting at his desk. He looks up. There I am bleeding from this head wound, soaking wet, totally naked. He runs by me to get at the perpetrators, but they're gone. We never figured out who they were. And the coach came back. I got dried off, got some first aid. And then I opened the locker. And as I did, water came cascading out. Somebody had filled that locker up to the air vent with water, which meant now I faced a, a real dilemma because everything I had to put on was soaking wet. I had to call home, I knew, to get dry clothing, but I didn't want to. The one thing I didn't want to do that entire school year, especially during the middle of the day, was to make a phone call home. Why? Well, even though my mom and I had not discussed it, I knew that she hovered over the phone all day, and each time the phone rang, and it rang incessantly, she would pick the phone up each time it rang before it completed one full ring because she did not want to miss the call that informed her that her son was no longer among the living. That was the fear. I didn't want to exacerbate her psychological distress condition any more than I needed to, so I hesitated, but eventually that was my only alternative, so I did call. She brought the dry clothing, and we made that exchange. Twenty years later, those scenes came flooding back because by that time, my entire family had actually moved from Little Rock to Los Angeles. My mom and I were out for an informal lunch. She was quite a character. She said to me at, at lunch, she says, Terry, do you remember that school you used to go to down in Little Rock? I said, well, <laughs> yeah, I really do. She said, one day somebody called me up and in a very official voice said, Mrs. Roberts, I regret to have to inform you, but your son Terrence has been savagely beaten. He has been beaten so badly, I doubt he'll live for another half hour. Gave her the gory, bloody details that he filled in for her. She bought it. She went over the edge psychologically. Made her way up to the school somehow. Principal helped calm her down, escorted her to my classroom. She peered in there. I was okay. Nothing had happened. But the psychological damage had been done. And as she told me that story, 20 years after the fact, I could feel chill bumps up my spine because I realized in that moment, as I reviewed that scene from the gym when I called, I did not realize the psychological cost. I had no idea how much was paid, but my mom was okay with that because she said it was her job to be the buffer between me and some of that madness. She used to burn the hate mail. I'd get home from school, I'd find her at times burning the hate mail. One day I said, Mom, you can't burn the hate mail. That stuff has historical value. <laughs> she said, well, and actually it was the first time I heard her use four-letter words. She told me in very explicit terms what she thought about the historical value. 
Because in her mind, her task was to maintain barriers around her son, to be the buffer zone, to take the flack that, so I wouldn't have to. And I said to her that 20 years later when she told me, I said, well, you never told me. She said, yes, because that would have interfered with your ability to remain at that school. And she knew it was important not only for her to maintain her stance in support of me, but for me to operate as if it wasn't costing her a great deal. We used to lie to each other all the time. <laughs> How was your day? Fine. How was your day? Great. You know, that sort of thing. We both knew we were lying, but it was one of those necessary things. You do what you have to do. You do what you need to do. I sometimes think about the lessons learned from that experience, and one of the ones that jumps out at me very quickly is that you cannot color code this thing called racism. Not every single white person in Little Rock was my enemy. Not every single black person was my friend. On that first day when I walked up to Central High School as I began to walk home when I couldn't get through the lines of, of National Guardsmen, a white adult male came running after me and I turned around and assumed what possibly could be construed as a karate stance to protect myself. And he waved it off and saying, no, no, I'm a friend. I want you to know that not everybody in this town is against what you're doing. I thanked him. I never knew his name, actually, and we went our separate ways. But that was one example. And it's important for us to realize that because sometimes people think in terms of monolithic groups that these are my people because we share the same skin color. I don't think so. Well, another lesson I learned from that episode is that people will respond to situations by telling you what it is they want to do and then acting to preserve or to create what that is. And by that I mean that the folk who were in opposition to us came out in droves and let us know in no uncertain terms that they were not happy about this situation. Another thing that I learned too is very important is that when you are in a situation like that, at least I was, you will be afraid my fear level was off the chart all the time. I have never been that afraid in my life. In fact, I thought, as a human being, if you were ever that afraid, you'd probably just keel over and die. But what I learned is that fear is portable. You can take fear with you. Whatever happens to you here at UC San Diego, if you're frightened about it, don't worry about it. Put that fear in your pocket and keep on moving forward. You can remain goal-directed, goal-oriented, regardless of the fact that you are afraid. That's just part of the human condition. We're always afraid about something, but it doesn't have to get in our way. It doesn't have to shut us down. We can do other things. One of the things that I've come to understand lately is that in this country, we probably will not, especially in my lifetime, see any substantial change in this business of uh, race relations because of our history and our habitual response patterns. But that doesn't mean that we give up the fight, you see. A few days ago, I ran across a person who shared with me a bit of Jewish philosophy. She gave me a term. It's called tikkun olam, repair of the world. We are invited, if you will, commanded to work toward repair of the world, even though we know that we will not finish the task. But even though that's true, we are not allowed not to work on it. I like that. 
So regardless of what it looks like, the world is in need of repair, and we've got to work on it, even though we know it probably won't change that much, especially in our lifetime. It gives you, at least it gives me, a sense of hope and optimism, thinking globally and uh, way beyond my lifespan. And I think that's one of the things that people get too caught up in, is seeing self as the center of the world. That's another lesson for me out of Little Rock. The thing that happened there was much bigger than nine kids. Oh, yeah, much bigger. Someone asked me a question once, did you know how big it was going to be? No, absolutely not. I mean, how could you? How could anybody know? But what I've learned is that that particular episode still provides lessons, new lessons, lessons we've yet to learn from it. There is a rather iconic photograph from that period. It shows Elizabeth Eckford on the first day of school walking, and right behind her, with her mouth open this wide, is Hazel Bryan Massery, Hazel Bryant at the time. Hazel self-defines as having been the poster child for American racism. The significant thing about her story is she's given that up. She has changed her mind. She's no longer racist. She called me up one day on one of my consultant trips to Little Rock and said she wanted to talk. We did. She told me that she was sorry she had acted that way. She asked for forgiveness. We had a great conversation, a very healing conversation. And she, for her efforts, was kicked out of her own family. She is persona non grata in her family of origin because she's given up racist ideology. And I bring her story to you because it's important to know that when you do make those kinds of significant changes in your life, you're likely to lose significant others, people who want you to be a certain way, who are unhappy with you for changing. But if you are at all true to yourself, you will make the changes because you realize that other people cannot dictate who you are or what you are going to do. I ran into another person in Little Rock, too. It was an interesting encounter. We were in the airport. He said, you're Terry Roberts. I recognize you. I said, yes. He said, I was in your PE class at Central High. And when he said that, I just... <laughs> because I remembered how much hell I had to put up with. And he said, no, no, I wasn't one of the ones beating you up. I was one of the ones watching you get beaten up. <laughs> and we had a long conversation about it because he said, I felt afraid. I knew that if I tried to help you, I would get beaten up, but I didn't have the courage to step forward. And it had been 40-plus years at that time, and he told me he'd carried that feeling around for 40-plus years, that feeling that he should have acted, but he didn't. And the lesson in that is very clear. You know, when you are faced with an opportunity to take a stand, then by all means do it. Or you might run the risk of having to carry around that sort of negative emotion for a long period of time. I felt badly for him. Physical and even psychological wounds heal over time, but it's hard to deal with something that festers at the visceral level, just won't go away because of your choice of inaction. I go back to Little Rock a lot now, not just in terms of the consulting duties, but I go back there for all kinds of things. And it's a very interesting place now because a lot of people in Little Rock, especially a lot of white people, are now seeking to revise history by saying that, you know, it really wasn't that bad. We actually liked you black kids. We, uh, we were welcoming and we wanted you here. We had a welcoming party planned. It got canceled. But 
and they, they would like to, to change things around. And I know that it is an attempt to sort of take them out of the negative spotlight. But my response to them is, no, let's be honest about this thing. Let's own up to who we were. And if we have changed, then use that as an object lesson for young people to say that I can be this kind of person, but then through growth, through education, through choice, I can be a different person along the way. I like that kind of thinking. I haven't been able to convince uh, a lot of those folk down in Little Rock of that. I wish I could. In any case, another thing that I'd like to share with you tonight is simply this, that in order for us to change the way we are, we have to change the way we think. A poet friend of mine, Eloise Klein-Hilly, puts it this way, if what you know doesn't change you, change what you know. Very simple, very simple. Education is simply knowing what options are available to you. When you know more options, you can choose more things. You can choose a different way of being, a different way of thinking, a different way of resolving problems and issues. A few days ago, I was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I chanced to meet a young man by the name of Quay Hanna. Mark his name down. Look him up on the web. Q-U-A-Y-H-A-N-N-A. Quay Hanna. Quay self-describes as having been a wild-eyed, redneck racist when he grew up. He graduated college with a degree in English, didn't know what he wanted to do, so he decided to take a bus trip around the U.S. And he got on a Greyhound bus in Lancaster and took off. And he sat next to a black man on the bus, and he says, okay, here I am, this redneck racist. I'm sitting next to a black man. What do I do? He said, well, maybe I'll talk to him. So he began a conversation, and he said that dialogue actually was the beginning of a transformation. He was on that bus for about nine months, going through 37 states. And by the time he returned, he wrote a book that he self-published, and that book is entitled The Bus, Revelations of a Redneck. And he thought, well, maybe his family would buy it. He wasn't sure. But it turns out that people began to read that book and invite him to come to high schools to speak to young people. There was a racial incident at a school in Lancaster called Penn Manor High School. I forgot the details of the racial incident, but I do remember that in response to whatever it was, several white male students decided to wear white T-shirts as a sign of white power and white solidarity, sort of an intimidating statement. So the school principal called Quay, asked him for some help and some guidance because he knew that Quay had been such a person in the past but was now different. So Quay agreed to come and talk to these young men. And he said he was a little frightened at first because he wasn't sure because they considered him a race traitor and they had special kinds of responses for folk like that. But at any rate, he did. He said, I walked into this windowless room. There was a big table with lots of chairs, but these guys, all in their white T-shirts, had pushed their chairs, had amassed their chairs at one end of the table and left a lone chair at the other end for Quay. When he came in, he picked up his chair and took it down and sat with them, so they were all at one end of the table. And they let him have it for about half an hour. And then they said, well, okay, let's... What do you think now that we've told you everything that we think? 
And he said, you know what, fellows? I respect you. You knew about my life. You know about my life. And yet, you were willing to meet with me. In fact, you sought me out. I appreciate that. And I respect you for that. And he said, just that little preamble changed the, dyna the dynamic in the room just that quickly. And they began to listen to him. And he simply recounted his story. He didn't urge them to change. He didn't preach to them. He didn't chastise them. He just told his story. And at the end of that, as they were breaking up the group, one young man came to him. This happened on a Wednesday. He said, uh, could, you, could you come back and meet with us next Wednesday? He said, yes. And they had another session. At the end of that second session, at the end of that one, a kid comes up and says, could you come the next Wednesday? Quay has been going to that school every Wednesday for 10 years. And he has a club. And the members rotate through based on their you know, present school membership. But what he's doing is having young people from disparate points of view, different cultural and racial groups come together and share their stories. They're learning how to talk to each other. He came up with a formula called R squared equals C squared. If you're willing to give and receive respect, then you can have a civilized conversation. It makes so much sense. It's such a simple formula, but it works. I don't think it would work in every case. I think you have to have something going on inside you like Quay does to make it all happen. But I think other people can do it. Other people can do it. Uh, I think it's something that can be exported. In fact, I'm going to be in communication with this young man to try and see if I can help out in any way to get that exported, maybe to San Diego. That would be good. We could talk to each other. You know, seriously talk. Well, in any case, I, I again, uh, just like to say how much I appreciate having had the opportunity to be here with you, and I look forward to uh, interchanges with you in the next couple of days. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.